Today I have finally this guest here, Patrick's Morrison. <laughs> thank you for having me. I can't wait. This is awesome. <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for coming here. I really enjoyed the time that we worked together and also um, the brilliant mind that you have, all the the things that I I, I knew a little bit. I think it's better for us to talk about it, but a few things that you show me that you like to do and all the knowledge and all the inspiration and you always are like a happy person and Thank you. good vibe. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talk with you. And I'm, man, when I, I said, when you said to me, yeah, yeah, I'm going, I said, yes, I'm so happy about that. So thank you so much for... Oh accept my invitation thank you i look really looking forward to it i've listened through a few like loving the guests so far so i'm going how not sure how i'm on this lineup but thank you thank you much appreciated um the, the good thing is we always try to the main idea will be how we're going to be talking about photography videography drones and there is one side that you work that's really interesting at least for me but i think everyone that's listening as well talking about your career or everything that you are doing now how come did you start to do your phd yeah so um basically when i was doing my undergrad in archaeology which is a three-year degree learning to become an archaeologist we learned all about the world and the past and how people used to live and then in second year i went on this field school up into murajuga to study the rock art up there which is amazing. There's a million, I think you've been up there, but there's a million or two million or three million something pieces of rock art on this one peninsula and set of islands. No, Incredible. I've never been there. Um, there's, there's no more art anywhere else in the world, also known as the Dampier Archipelago. Ah, uh, yeah. And cool. so that's what people will know us as. A spectacular landscape. We spent three weeks up there recording all the Aboriginal rock art that's there, and I just fell in love. Absolutely loved it. Did my honours degree looking at a site um, that was a lot of stone tools um, mm -hmm. that were deposited on the ground um, a good few thousand years ago. And then sea level came up and covered the site in water, just a little bit of water. Um, and so we found it clearly not in the same climate that had been deposited in. Um, then when I got the call, it was like, there's more work to do here, yeah. trying to unravel the climate and what it's been like in the place over 10,000 years. Thinking about the wind and the waves and how the sea level has changed and everything, I jumped at it. I couldn't wait to work with the same team uh, at UWA. And yeah, we've been researching the climate of Murujuga ever since. That's incredible. So you start, you finish your uni in archaeology. Yeah. How come did you start to like these or... Because it needs to be... What inspired you to pursue this um, degree? Yeah, it's a good question. I didn't actually start it. I started another degree and I just did it as a broadening unit. So oh, in my me. second semester, there was this unit called, I think, Experimenting with Archaeology. And the whole idea of the unit was we're always studying these things, right? So uh -huh. I guess to zoom out, the definition of archaeology is to look at material culture and try to figure out things about past people. Uh -huh. And so the idea was to make one of these artifacts from a culture and to see how hard it was and what goes into it. I can't remember. I, I had to make an Aztec clay tablet and that's really hard. We had to go and like find mud to turn into clay and then 
fire it in my backyard. Don't know if that's allowed, but that's what you do. <laughs> and so, and then we Just had to make this thing. Didn't <laughs> didn't turn out very well. But it, it was the process of trying to figure out, well, you don't just... People in the past were incredibly clever. They had the same brains as us. They had internal lives and expertise and all of uh-huh, these things. Uh-huh. And you had to learn to put that together. And some people go, oh, I'm, I'm going to make a stone tool. How hard can it be? It's like really hard. Okay. Really, really, I can't make one. You, you said it didn't turn well. What happened? Um, I don't think I had <laughs> clean enough clay and I don't think I fired it high enough. So it was all... It, it kind of worked. It, Uh-huh. held together but it was all crumbly and gross I think if I w- was living back then and handed to someone they wouldn't have been very happy <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy that's um, really good but okay. I loved it. it it was that appreciation of well, people in the past were just like us uh-huh. uh, but we can learn things about them from the things they left behind mm-hmm. I just I fell in love with that idea and one of the ideas that I really fell in love with was this idea that sea level has changed so much over the past uh-huh. um, and Sven Newsman, who was our first year lecturer showed us this map of Australia back 20,000 years ago and it used to be connected to Papua New Guinea and then after the ice age ended sea levels rose 120 meters and covered about 20% of the Australian continent and left a lot underwater but there's things there for us to find and so that I was just became so obsessed with this idea of uh-huh. how the climate and how the sea level and everything has changed over the past and how people who were living here at the time particularly Aboriginal people uh-huh. responded to that saw it happen drew it in some of the art in Murujuga that's fantastic And now we can, as we look forward to kind of dealing with climate change in the future, which is a very different beast, but it's still, you know, it's climate change. We can understand how people dealt with it in the past and maybe it can help us in the future. Oh, that's amazing. I, I never thought about it because if you realize um, there's so many places here in WA and um, I think for you, it's kind of like a plate full of, opportunities and possibilities and how come did you guys went to in Dampier Peninsula mm-hmm. why, why we went specifically on this location yeah so the reason is that because of the rock art mainly it's so it's going for world heritage listing uh-huh. at the moment which is really really exciting uh-huh. and the reason is two or three million pieces of rock art which is more rock art than anywhere else in the world okay it's so in- it's the, when you talk about WA is the place that you have more artifacts or the rock ups that yeah. you're saying. And so a lot of places have a heap of archaeology. Like everywhere you go, okay. it's full. But this place is special. And it's uh-huh. special. It seems to be a bit of a meeting place where people come together. And the thing about the rock is that it's incredibly stable and incredibly hard. And it has this red surface, right? Cool. And then if you scratch through the red surface, it reveals this bright white surface underneath. And it's perfect for doing rock engravings and drawings in. But those rock engravings, because the rock is so hard, uh-huh. weathers so slowly. So we think some of the art there is probably from when people first came to Australia 60 or 50,000 years ago. You're kidding me. Um, and what is amazing, the reason we think this, right, um, we don't have dates on it yet, and the project that we're working on is to try to figure uh-huh. this out. But people were in the region 50,000 years ago. So to put that in perspective, the pyramids in Egypt, like five or six, so, probably fact check that, but <laughs> like five or 6,000 years, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Um, the Ice Age, 20,000 years ago, when people got here, oh, yeah. 50 or 60. Mm-hmm. And then some all of the rock art at that time is all kangaroos and lizards and emus and faces, this particular colonizing uh-huh. repertoire. Uh-huh. It's very terrestrial. And that's because at the time, Rujuk was 100 kilometers inland, uh-huh. 160 kilometers inland at the Ice Age. And then all of the younger art that looks nice and fresh all starts to turn into fish and turtles and whales. And that's because the sea came in. The sea came in, yeah. Um, and it went from 160 k's inland, just an arid range in the middle of the desert, 
to a coastal archipelago full of those beautiful islands. And so this story of climate change, because people have drawn this into the rock in their millions, this is just an interesting place for us to think about, well, how do people respond to this sort of thing? Uh And um, when you talk about those drawings, um, is there anyone that you saw and you thought, wow, that's a little bit different from what I've been seeing in my life? What I'm saying that is, the other day I was looking like um, Instagram page and they talk about the ancient things oh, yeah, and always yeah. is connected with aliens. <laughs> oh, yeah, the aliens. Yeah, yeah. And this is it's an amazing thing. So people have, particularly in the Kimberley as well, they looked at them really early on and went, oh, these must be aliens. But um, what's interesting about that record is it's continuous. Uh-huh. Um, and so a lot of the things that people think are aliens, they're headdresses that are actually still in use at contact and are still at use today. Uh-huh. And so you look at these things and go, this is amazing. This is beautiful art. Um, but... The even more amazing thing is the people who made that art are connected culturally to the people today. And all of those beautiful songs and dances and cultures and song lines are so deeply connected to that. And so the reason people think about aliens, right, is that when people got here, or European people got here and walked around, they went, this couldn't possibly, this must come from Europe. We're the best. Like, we make the most beautiful art. People couldn't possibly make this art here. Totally not true. People were making this incredible culture. Uh Uh-huh. but it's, to answer your question about what I think the there is these beautiful early faces um, to just look spectacular. So they're like kind of round and they've got big eyes and headdresses on. And we think they're part of when people first came, maybe even through Papua New Guinea and through Queensland, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of similar style mm-hmm. all across the north, um, that people came and were drawing these spectacular faces. And we think they're the oldest depictions of faces in the world. Uh-huh. Um, but the amazing thing about that is they look so, like, I guess, alien or so different to what you have now. Uh-huh. But at every step along the way in the rock art record, it's connected to the next phase. And so we think the people that live here today are continuously connected. They have memories and stories that connect all the way to those very first no people way. who are drawing that thing. And that is even more incredible <laughs> than aliens, really, I think. It's stunning. And, and do you think all these rock arts and everything that you saw so far, they used to, in your opinion, would be for them to communicate, would be them to register their, I don't know, their songs, their music, or... Because I don't think, maybe you can explain this for me better, but did you think that that time they have like a way to communicate with each other? Yeah, um, it's a really, really good question. It's one that we struggle with as archaeologists. We go, how do we know? Are people just scribbling things on walls or uh-huh. are they? do these have meaning? And we really do think they have quite intense meaning because today they have very intense meaning. Um, but then we start to ask broader questions about when did people very long ago become just like us, right? When uh-huh. could people have language or culture or religion or song or dance? These are complex things, right? Like. Uh-huh. Um, chimpanzees have can make some stone tools and they have some maybe some sense of language but like humans modern humans which we all are, are very different and we have these special abilities right but we think that was really early and one of the best clues is in australia um whereas if you just rewind a little bit before they started making this art they had to i guess they could walk from papua new guinea to australia but they could never walk through into in indonesia so people came from africa and there was oh. always ocean to cross, like five or six days of crossing the ocean, gotcha. which no other species seems to really be able to do. I guess like yeah, some obviously fish can do it, <laughs> like birds can fly it. But in terms of like human species, it means if you're going to cross the ocean for four or five days, 
um, probably in their thousands, which is what the genetic and linguistic evidence suggests. Uh-huh. So it's not a few people floating across on a log. It's like people have some sense of how to build a boat, how to survive on the ocean for days at a time. Water. Water, you have to understand the currents and the weather and how to find land. And so we think that kind of suggests to us those people probably had complex language. They probably had some sort of teaching. They probably had to organize that many people uh-huh. over thousands of years. Uh-huh. You need a pretty complex society. And so we think those sort of things are then going into that art. And what we find now is that people have, uh, people aren't just willy nilly drawing stuff. Mm -hmm. It relates to um, a lot of ritual that I I can't speak to. That's what the traditional learners to talk on. I mean, it relates to like hunting rituals and song lines and stories. Uh And now a lot of those pieces of art are all connected to those song lines. Uh I mean, that's how people record and explain it. It's fascinating, man. Uh, I can't believe everything that you are. Saying, I start to imagine all these people, and you can imagine that time they don't have like, oh, I think they don't have like ability. If you have to travel for five five days, and I can be wrong, but I think without water you can survive at least like two days, yeah. no more than that. Yeah, so people are carrying water with them, right? That's yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Plus food. How are you gonna be? Oh, oh they could fishing, but yeah. They need and to probably have, like, were. And this is one of the really interesting clues that has been found in Indonesia is there's these big uh, fish hooks from kind of 40,000 years no ago. And so you'd only use those in the deep sea. So people are clearly routinely heading out. And so, again, we don't think this is an accident that people got here. People were probably just very competent. They had the same brains. They were just mm. as smart as us. And they were heading out into the ocean day to day, like we sometimes get to do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't think I could... That'd be said, I couldn't survive five days in the ocean by myself. But... They were complex and they had these set of tools. And so when they came to Australia, it was probably, uh-huh. I don't want to say it was easy, but it was probably well part of their repertoire. Uh-huh. Um, and and on, on your studies, everything on the research that you are doing, especially when you talk about tides, and you said that before it was covered and now we can see uh, the rock art. Are you seeing some changes too on the tides? The tides are pretty much like recessing. We still like have more opportunity to see more artwork or what what do you think is going to happen yeah well so the problem is that the sea level is rising and so it will it will challenge some of the um some of the art and could Uh pose a risk to it but the the broad story is this that's just before about six and a half thousand years ago probably maybe four thousand trying to figure out not that long ago (laughs) our sea level was a little bit higher than it is today Uh and this is really important because it probably meant that the western the the ice sheets in the antarctic had collapsed a little bit and they had made the sea level slightly higher Um, And that probably will happen as we go into a warmer climate. And so these clues of what sea level looks like when it's a bit higher um, becomes really relevant. I Uh mean, Fremantle, a lot of that is only a few metres above sea level. And we know from the record that sea level can easily go a few metres higher. And you go, we're really dealing with the problem. People are going to have to move... Like, Fremantle will be underwater in at least a few hundred years, maybe sooner. And we really have to understand what Uh that looks like. Because we need to adapt for that and plan and probably then mitigate that in terms of thinking about burning fossil fuels. Uh But then going further back, it was 120 metres lower. And so what we're really interested in is to see if we can find rock art under the water. That would be very, very interesting. Um, Because people have stories, the song lines that Aboriginal people go out into the ocean. Uh And they speak about sites that were land that are now underwater, Uh which is incredible those memories must be eight ten thousand years old um and so it would be nice to find some way of science coming to the same conclusion yeah. just finding these sites and being able to share them and bring them back and tell these stories in collaboration uh-huh. with information that we can provide 
um, that can like, yeah, reinvigorate and ignite and really like try to tell these same uh-huh. beautiful stories of climate change that people uh-huh. have had in their memory for 10,000 years. Jesus. And I, I know, um, especially looking your um, social media channels and you have like a deeper relationship with the underwater animals, underwater life, right? And um, who knows here, Dampia Peninsula, generally over there, the water is mercury or it's not easy for you to see if you are diving. Yeah. Um, do you think your ability to dive over there, what would be the tools or what would be the, the knowledge that you could have because you cannot see properly there? What, what I'm trying to understand, I'm so fascinated about that and I'm trying to understand how we can grab more information and go there and see more stuff because you said that you'll be underwater and mm. if the, the, the tides are going up, mm. hardly you'll be for you to come see and see more more stuff so you need to go down so what could be the solution for you to um capture more photos capture more the history about this time there under the water yeah that's a great question so one of the my supervisor miko leary um is looking at this problem in particular of how do you survey these landscapes and how to find these places yes. and so my skills i guess well i, I want to touch on this a bit later but is photogrammetry and really try to 3d these things in detail uh-huh. but the first step we have to do is look at them on a landscape scale and so one of my colleagues and fellow phd students caitlin smith is also working on this trying to figure out using like computer models where you would look at those and what you need there is data on the seabed and you might have heard everyone says about the ocean we haven't mapped much of it um we've mapped a good few percentage of it but uh-huh. not a lot of any detail we just don't know what's under there uh-huh. and so we're looking for places um like on land right people live near water and uh-huh. they live they're making art on the, these rocks and so the first step would be to find those places watercourses and old environments on the seabed And the way you do that, you have side scan sonar, which people use for finding shipwrecks, but it's really useful for that. You have multi-beam echo sounder, which gives you these beautiful 3D recordings. We have satellites and all sorts of ways of getting these detailed 3D maps, and that's the first step. And that's really where we are at the moment, of Uh just trying to map out these places and go, where would we look? Um, Uh Rotnest is another great example. You could walk there 7,000 years ago, and the specifics of and of where you could walk and what are the places that people are living in. Um, we've got an amazing data set of LIDAR, which is they fly lasers over and you it bounces off the seabed. gives you a 3D model of it. And you can see all of these ancient dune systems um, that are now the caves that we dive in with like those amazing sharks. Uh-huh. Um, but people would have lived in those. And the only way we kind of can map out that entire landscape is that remote sensing. Um, wow. So that's the first step and we're going to be working on that over definitely the next few years and the big success of that program was in 2019 we actually found the first sites in australia um underwater it had never been surprisingly that's 3,000 sites in europe right that people have archaeological sites that people have found on the seabed uh-huh. but in australia we've got two and they were both found by this like uwa flinders team um that mick o'leary was on jonathan benjamin was leading joe mcdonald was on all of my <laughs> colleagues and professors um and they kind of looked around and went, where are the places where the ancient landscape survives? Just by looking at side scan data and LIDAR data and photos of the seabed. And we're able to eventually find in between these islands, these places that were very protected, huge scatters of stone tools that people had left there probably 8,000 years ago. Um, And that was only possible because of years of looking and trying to understand the environment Uh and map it in detail and go, what are the best places we're going to find these things? 
Um, and then we found them, which was really, really cool. <laughs> well, for example, I know that you have like these sonars, these mood pings, everything that you can have at least like this data and have like an information that you can double check like the, the elevations, everything. How do you, how do you distinguish like one simple place to a possible another place that could be a, maybe another discovered archaeological discover what what could be a difference from uh, man i'm so fascinated about that uh, it's basically like you have like a data i can show here that's simple rocks mm. and i can show this those are simple rocks but it could be potentially a yeah. archaeological site how do you can distinguish that yeah it's, it's a problem we're working on right now because we've now got two sites so we can start to build these models but <laughs> okay. i can say really broadly that you you are you are looking for places where people like to live living near water and you're uh -huh. also looking for environments that look the same as land environments but they're on the seabed and so for example if you're like at a beach and it's covered in just featureless sand uh -huh. you don't really get well you do get that in deserts and stuff right but it's clearly a beach system that represents a coastal ecosystem and it represents an underwater ecosystem if you go further off the shelf and into slightly deeper waters mm. you find channels like intertidal channels that couldn't have formed underwater they're clearly just from a time so when it was idea. mangroves and beaches back then and then sea level has risen and it hasn't destroyed those landforms or like off perth just Uh, so there's Rottnest Island, the island 20Ks off. Uh -huh. And then down to the south and a bit to the north of it, there's this really long linear feature, like a big mm -hmm. hill underwater. And if you go down, that's actually a shoreline from uh -huh. a really long time ago. And when you start to look at these big features and you go, there's a shoreline, there's a channel, there's what could have been an ancient wetland, there's those things, you start to look at those and go, well, they clearly haven't been destroyed as the sea level came up, uh -huh. which you can't take for granted. And they're places where people would like to live. And so we're hoping that just by following those sort of things, we can start to find um, artifacts. And the amazing thing about Australia is that people have lived here for 60,000 years. People uh -huh. have lived everywhere. There was probably actually quite a few, like a, a good few million people in all likelihood who were living here before contact, uh -huh. Aboriginal people. And so there's archaeology everywhere, stone tools, art, etc. There's a lot of stuff. So we, our bet is if you start to find those landscapes that are intact, you'll start to find evidence that people were living in those landscapes. So t talking about that, when you are traveling here in WA, do you have like the eye, like a normal person, I'm going there to enjoy the location, going to enjoy the landscape, or you start to find like pieces, of, um, might be art rock here, might be something here. Do you have this on your mind every yeah, time that you travel here? You've got me there, particularly in the last <laughs> few years, because I looked at it, remember like one of the first times I went on a field trip with my now supervisor Mick and he just read this landscape exactly as you were saying he'd just look at a beach and go I know how old that is I know how this formed and just because he had this understanding I was like I want that how do I get that and I do feel not to yeah but like I feel in the last kind of year even or two years uh -huh. that I start to come to appreciate those sort of things <laughs> and so I'm saying I'm walking around Rottnest and going oh my god there's an old dune or like if have you been to Little Salmon Bay yeah um, yeah beautiful place but there's a lot of these pinnacles uh -huh. like the pinnacles up at Nambung and they're probably from ancient forests where the root systems no get fossilized and then they're really hard bits of limestone um, that would have formed in the ice age and then everything else is eroded away from them and it leaves these features in the seabed and so you look at those and you're like that's a bit of limestone sticking yeah. up but you can look at those and go that's evidence that this landscape used to be in the ice age very far inland with huge forests like the ones you see down south Jesus, um, <laughs> never look at that place in that way, man. I know, and then all my friends are like, oh my God, stop talking about rocks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so I try to keep that in check, but 
yeah, it is this appreciation for things. But the amazing thing that keeps coming back to us as well is that Aboriginal people in the, the song lines uh-huh. have this same memory and stories that t- tell the same details. Uh-huh. Um, and so we have derived these things only in the last 50 or 100 years through scientific method and learning about ice cores and sea level and isotopes, blah, 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 all uh-huh. of this sort of stuff. Um, and then it often comes to asking elders and when they share stories, they often they tell the same story. And that is really, really cool to me because, I mean, scientifically, those pieces of information are both very recent and very hard fought and uh-huh. took a long time to derive them. Whereas people know these things, and so if you know they're kind of right people to ask, they're not telling exactly the same story. It's slightly different, obviously, in the way we derive it, but it, the essence is the same, and it tells the same story of this ancient landscape and that's how awesome. people lived in it. Um, that's really cool. Oh, man. And um. <clears throat> For example, and all these places that you've been in, um, talking about diving, what is the place that you like most to dive here to enjoy mm. before you go and see? Oh, you could be like. <laughs> before I start being a nerd. Yeah. Um, it has to be coming back to those beautiful caves off Rot Nest. And the reason is because there's the grey nurse sharks that live uh-huh. in those. And so they're pretty big sharks, but they're very friendly. Okay. And you, there's one right on the west end of Rotness that you just drop down into through this little hole uh-huh. and you come in and it opens up into this beautiful space. And you can see light. It's not very cavey, but it's a bit dark. And the grey nurse sharks hide under the um, overhangs because yeah. I guess they feel safe uh-huh. in there. So you just drop down and then these huge sharks come swimming by you and looking at you. They come right up to you and look at you and then go and swim away. <laughs> and that's... I love that. It's really beautiful. And I always thought I'd be really scared of seeing a shark. I'm sore. I was in the right with a great white or something. I'd, I'd feel a bit different. But they're so gentle and they're so calm and they just float there. And it's wonderful being in the water with something that's kind of bigger than you. Oh. Man, uh, yeah, I, I have like an opportunity to not dive, but I was swimming. And all of a sudden, like two sharks came and that scares me. Like, I, I don't know if I can see this beautiful side of the sharks one day one day we'll get diving out there. <laughs> man that's that's my dream i i think like i have opportunity to dive like only two or three times in my life and always was with the instructor and like i always put you down i said oh my god seriously and put you down hey, you can dive now you can dive now i said cool i i do need to have like this ticket i do need to do this I, i'm looking forward to that and i i the two times that I went there on the water, it's kind of here in different place, mm-hmm. different world. It's a different perspective. The peace that you have inside of you, it's unbelievable. And I, I definitely need to do that. I think that's something that's missing. And, and I, you know, I, I, it's on my to-do list. I have to do this. Mm. I have to do this. I have to do this. Yeah, I, I love it. I've been snorkeling for years and years and years, and I got my scuba diving license like right at the end of school. And I did a little bit of it, but only in the last couple of years. I've had the UW Underwater Club, which goes out and dives all the time. Okay, wonderful. And I've got a bunch of friends who I go diving with all the time. And now I'm in the water every weekend and no way, in the really? week and going snorkeling around Perth and everything. Uh-huh. And that. I love it. You start to really get a sense of all the different sites and find your way around and you start to see... Because, you know, sometimes in Perth you go snorkeling or diving and it's a bit murky and uh-huh. not, uh, yeah, not yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. And then some days it just clears up and it's like swimming in a fishbowl. Little Salmon Bay on Rottnest is always seems to be like that. But you just... And there's stingrays swimming past you and dolphins Jeez. coming up and all that. And you're like, really? 
And then it's like six o'clock before you go to work. And you go into work, you're like, I've had the best day already. I've swum with dolphins. <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's the other thing. I'm like, oh, I could still be swimming with dolphins. <laughs> but that's, that's incredible. And it's basically like in our doorsteps here. Yeah. Right? It's unbelievable. And sometimes I believe we live in, in a bubble. We complain a lot of things and there's so magical things close to us. Mm. Just open our eyes and do something completely different, yeah. right? That's when people complain about Perth being a little bit boring. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing. I'm Yeah, right. <laughs> there's so there many other things. Dolphins, huh? I think I think being honest, I think if you look like nightlife or um, more people busy life, of course Perth it's it's really small if you compare with different place. Um, I, ca- I came from a big city, and here, o- over there, everything opened like 24 hours, mm. like literally. And here, when I arrived, was five o'clock. The <laughs> market is closed. No, no, it's still nine, right? But every time, like five o'clock, bye bye. There is nothing. You walk in the street. There is no one. In in that aspect, of course, Perth is really small. It's still like this feeling of safe place but countryside place for us but if you look all this beauty all these opportunities that you can have Perth is amazing you have like if you have like a boat you can have like some friends that can go dive and talking about dive you said that you have like a club on UWA Mm. how that works um, so, yeah, it's a bunch of students and I guess also people who aren't students just are in this club and we have a boat. And then every kind of weekend, people try to get out and go off Rottnest. And that's how I've done most of my diving off Rottnest. Oh, really? And then they do these trips to the Abrolhos Islands or Dunsborough or all of these Exmouth, these beautiful places. And I've just had some of the best diving, like in the Abrolhos. So, but, but to be part of this, you don't need to be a student? No, they, it's quite open to everyone. In fact, sometimes you go out on the boat and it's like, three students and <laughs> the rest <laughs> the rest is not but the boat belongs to the uwa or um yeah, the one of the clubs at uwa yeah uh-huh. it's just not an official thing but it's by far there's a bunch of other ones i think murdoch has one and a bunch of them so there's for people who are getting into diving going and joining a club and making sure you're out on the boat relatively often it's yeah. pretty it ends up being pretty cheap and pretty really a great way to spend a weekend that's a good tip i i, I think i'm gonna be trying to look on these and i really want to Especially when about talking about photos and video, I would love to dive in literally on these and mm. see how um, the potential about these and the cameras and look at the animals that that, that fascinates me and it, it, it frustrates me in the same side and mm. on the other side as well because I haven't done this as so far. So that, that that's a good idea because I, I never thought it would be like clubs that you can go and enjoy and. Mm. And it's good getting diving with a bunch of people because I found I'd like try to do underwater photography. Don't know how good I am at it, but I feel like I'm getting better. And one of the things that people really seem to like is like the underwater environment. As you said, it's so different. It's so uh-huh. like another world. And so when you're taking a photo of that, it's sometimes hard to communicate that. Whereas when you have people and you have like your dive buddy right in front of it and then people off in the distance and floating around, suddenly these places just look so much bigger and more beautiful because you see these little divers oh, floating around like the in perspective. them yeah or a shark you like take a picture of it and you're like that uh-huh. looks great but then you have a shark and then like your mate <laughs> next to it way better image um and that when you go out with a huge group of people it's uh-huh. just great to have people dotted around the environment and then 
And so I always go to take a picture and people go, oh, sorry, I'm in your way. And I'm like, no, 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 get back in the way. <laughs> But <laughs> I'm uh, trying to take a picture of you. Taking picture on the water, that's uh, sparks your um, inspiration to do 3D photography mm. on the water? Yeah. Or you start outside of the water on the land first? Yeah, you Where, know, it was actually underwater. Yeah. Really? Yeah, so the, there was a 3D mapper project that was uh -huh. run by the Maritime Archaeological Association, I think, Kevin Edwards and Nick Bogordan, like years uh -huh. ago, in 2014 or 2015. Mm -hmm. We're doing this project where uh, suddenly, so 3D photogrammetry is where you take all sorts of images and you combine them into 3D models. Um, and it became kind of when computers got fast, uh -huh. <laughs> it suddenly became much easier to do. Uh -huh. And this was only in 2014, 2015 when I was leaving school. Um, And so I saw just on Facebook that people were using this, swimming over shipwrecks with GoPros, taking hundreds or thousands of images and reconstructing beautiful 3D models of them. And when you're in water, as you said, it's often pretty murky and hard to see everything. You rarely see a whole shipwreck in one go. You just can't see it. Whereas with photogrammetry, you take hundreds of little images and the computer combines them into this beautiful model. Uh -huh. And then you can look at it all at once and go, oh, I see it. I, and for archaeologists, it's really, really useful. You can like put it all together and figure uh -huh. out what's going on. What was your first 3D model that you remember that was, I did it? The first one, this is a classic. Everyone goes through this, like a tree stump. <laughs> so uh -huh. what you're looking for in photogrammetry is something that's really has a lot of detail and it doesn't have any shiny surfaces. It's like something the computer can just latch onto and figure out. And everyone just goes out and goes to a tree and takes a bunch of photos of a tree and gets this 3D model. And that was like, oh, It works. The software does these things. And okay. then I think one of the next things I did was going off to, it must have been the North Mole Barge off Fremantle. So it's this little wreck, maybe 100 meters swim out uh -huh. from the harbor. Tiny little thing. People swim through it and crayfish on it and everything. But I swam over that with my GoPro to like 700 images or so and then put it through my, my poor MacBook, my <laughs> 2014 <laughs> MacBook. It, it process for like three or four days or something. I couldn't use the computer for all that time. Are you kidding? And then it just spits out this cool 3d model um that i still have somewhere of like the shipwreck and you can spin it around and look through it and see all the things that you normally uh -huh. dive on um it's got a lot easier in terms of the computation since then but it's uh -huh. basically the same thing because if you take photos um and you are mentioning um gopros but um for you to dive in on these 3d photogrammetry those photos they need to have like data embedded as um When I say these like GPS or coordinators that could help the program to build this uh, model or I just can take pictures and the program can figure this out, everything by itself. Yeah. So the program could do it all by itself. That's okay. the, the math relies on finding images that are shared in each, or sorry, points that are shared in each image and just matching those. So we can do it. The really good thing about having, like when you do it with a drone and we do this on some sites, big mm. archaeological landscapes, is that when you have that GPS, you can, especially with RTK and some really precise GPS, you can get really precise measurements on anything in that image. So underwater, what we used to do is you just go and take the images. You might put like a meter scale bar down and then you take the images. You don't need anything else. And then as long as you've got that one scale, you can measure anything else on the, um, right. the wreck, yeah, which makes a really useful site plan. Um, it, and this is not an exaggeration. You can spend two years trying to get a site plan that you can redo with photogrammetry in 10 or 15 minutes. Uh -huh. It's a huge difference and you can get all the same measurements. But then when you have, yeah, with drones and or what we do now is we go and we find points on the seabed and we put the GPS up to the top and then we 
like try to measure what the GPS point is and the depth to get a Z dimension. And then we can tell the software like you would with a drone, the GPS points. And then you get, you can put it on Google Earth, uh-huh. or you can put it on maps and actually start to figure out exactly where these things are in the yeah. world. There was a great one. Um, there's a site with New Wallara, an island, or Sir Graham Moore Island, I think it's called, up in the Kimberley. And there's some World War II defences there, um, or some World War II like, radar stations and low-round stations that the oh, Americans yeah. and the Australians ran to okay. try to monitor um, radar in the area and try to find planes and that sort of thing. And so they just left some of this camp. The Americans left a lot of the camp there. And some of my colleagues were mapping this out. And uh-huh. one of the things, the first thing they did was they put a drone up in the air and flew it over, and you get hundreds of photos and you can combine this into a map you can put over google earth and then you can go oh there's the there's old the buildings place. there's the things so it can't replace walking around on land and actually picking things up and looking at them and figuring out like oh this bottle has a mark where it says it was made in this town in america that's mm. detail that you just need a person to get uh-huh. but in terms of these beautiful site maps and figuring out where to look yeah you get these perfect like google earth level images but with centimeter accuracy uh-huh. wow um that Everyone loves now. It's become the standard of kind of recording a site. Is you just <laughs> the first thing you do, put the drone up and get it done. And um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. For example, all these mapping, all these photos that you create, all those models, even though that you can have like really detailed with centimeters or millimeters, whatever you be the, the the measure that you're gonna be using. I guess at the end, few things you'll be missing. I guess uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do you think with the artificial intelligence, when they come, uh, everything is changed a lot, right? Mm. Do you think the artificial intelligence can start to fill up these gaps and create something more accurate, show more um, the locations or the maps or the models that you are doing? Yeah, I mean, even the time that I've been using it from 2015 to now, in terms of what people have been able to do with these AI algorithms to speed uh-huh. up the process and to improve how much it can match, world of difference. Really? Like, not even a hundred times or a thousand times better, like much more than that. It's way better, growing very quickly. And we think that uh, one of the things my colleague Caitlin is trying to do for, in terms of looking for submerged sites is with these like detailed 3D models uh-huh. and things to try to yeah, use AI to detect like bits of archaeology or things in them to save you from going through and looking in more detail to see if it can find those things for you. Uh-huh. Um, and that, I think, within the next few years will become very standard part of the workflow. No the way. thing is, though, it can never... Well, I don't want to say never because things change so fast and it might age very poorly, but in terms of having a person there to really look at those things and scientifically assess them, like, as an expert on the ground, because these places are um, often an archaeological site on land in particular, it's made by people. Uh-huh. And so you very much... The experience of being there and looking at it and learning about it is a very distinct and interesting one. It's a lot of fun. We love doing it. Uh-huh. But it also teaches you so much more than I think you could ever get out of... No matter how fancy your AI is, um, you won't get that detail. But where it can help you is telling you where to go. And so you can put these through. It can fill in all of these gaps and it can kind of tell you, hey, these are the places that you know there is probably something for you to go look at and here are the places where not that there's nothing there but you can pay slightly less attention to um then again you want to be careful because you Uh don't want to rely on that and then always collect data that tells you your model is right and then you think it's better than it is because you've just done the same thing over and over again but certainly it speeds up the amount of work you can do Uh Um, and you go from having these really fuzzy difficult images to work with and interpret to these crisp detailed site plans Uh And it's not going to replace you, but it makes you much better, I think, in interpreting a site. 
Yeah, that's a good point because um, it, it's it's fascinating when you talk about if the AI is going to replace you or um, it's going to give you the tools for you to improve maybe your knowledge and align with your knowledge. You can basically like give your feedback or give you like your insights that can be more accurate. And you say, oh, there is like a creative side that I don't think AI is not yet, maybe, mm. um, can give this feedback. But uh, I think that could be something that the, instead of the replace, if you know how to work with those tools, can help you to maybe yeah something faster or create mm. something more. And I think photographers is a great example because people have been doing it since, I think, like since photography was invented. All it is is taking mm. measurements from photography. So since film plate photography, uh -huh. you can do photogrammetry. Problem is, you have to go as the scientist or whatever and find a picture, a point on that one and a point on that one and match them and then do a huge amount of math and get it all done. Um, and so people would do this. I think the, the, um, the military often would do this when trying to map out uh -huh. landscapes. They would have these contraptions that you go and you mechanical computers that would go and do this math for you. Uh -huh. And then when it became kind of more easy to do, uh, to some level you can throw images in and it will spit out a 3D model. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, oh, it's easy. It'll replace everything. But no, actually, everyone was just like, oh, this is easier. We should do more of this. In my experience, as it's got easier, I've actually had more people coming to me and going, hey, I need some level of expertise and understanding of how to make these things better. Because um, uh -huh. people can get the first step and they realize what the technology can do. Okay. Um, and then you have that level of kind of human skill or practice or everything that gets you that advantage or gives you that really good uh -huh. result. When, when you talk about these people that can find like this points that can match i remember you can correct me if i'm wrong but I, I remember you saying uh you were doing like a software that you built by yourself that was picking up these points to create something with the image for uwa or no for the museum mm. oh i've been writing some software for the museum nothing in photogrammetry to be honest and not my math is not good enough <laughs> for a lot of that matching stuff no what we've been doing is a lot of um in particular, mapping out these submerged landscapes. So once you've got these beautiful 3D models, uh -huh. um, a lot of it is about just combining it with other data we have. Um, so one oh. bit of software I've been working on recently is we have these sea level curves. We know how much the sea level have moved up and down, uh -huh. and we've got these 3D models. Um, but we want to be able to go, okay, well then, if the sea level's here, what does the where's the ocean? Like, what does this landscape look like? And so just little things like that. Oh, I love building little bits of software <laughs> that do help you, you know, pick out things and go. Oh, That's great. good. Man. That's good. And um. Thinking about that and all um, the mapping that you're talking about and you said that you use drones, right? Do you still doing, using like a Mavic Mini or? Yeah, so I've got two sad stories about the Mavic Mini. It's uh -huh. <laughs> already, um, my little one, I like, after two years, I remember the first time I think we flew together, you were flying the Inspire and I was flying this Mavic Mini little <laughs> 200 grand thing. Um, that served me so well. I took so many... I th I'm really happy with the pictures that I took off that uh -huh. over two years. Um, and yeah, I used to fly that. And then I got... Uh, so I crashed it. I was just... Someone went, it's too windy today. Don't fly the drone. And I was like, I you want the tried. shot though. And I got the shot, lost the drone. So... <laughs> oh, no. And that's the problem with those tiny ones. So they... A, a strong breeze just... They love gone, to play crashed, <laughs> um, And so that is sadly gone. Um, but two years, it lasted pretty well for such a $500 drone. Uh -huh. And then... I got a new one and I was flying it over the Swan River down near um, 
like to try to get some shots of the bridge from a distance. Right, yeah. And it just fell out of the sky. No warning. This one wasn't my fault at all. It just went. And so that, yeah, that was a good... I, I already knew this, and we kind of teach it to the students, being like, hey, don't, don't fly it over people. Like, that's the rule. But also, it's a really good rule because sometimes they don't do it often but they can something it happens and they fall out of the sky and this one did it was three hours total lifespan or whatever i had just got it and then it just fell so there's only a new one which is nice but like yeah that was good so currently i'm droneless i shouldn't be on this podcast i don't i'm (laughs) waiting for a new one to come along um but yeah we really they can't fly themselves so in terms of doing 3d mapping they're Uh not ideal but a lot of my work, you need to get a quick 3D map and you can fly it around and just take the pictures yourself. Uh-huh. Or I just, to be honest, need maps for presentations and papers and things where you can... I'm working on beaches and how old a lot of the beaches are. And I just want these nice pictures of the dunes to go, uh-huh. look, you can see it. And you can see how tall these dunes are and what ecosystems there are. And that, it shows it in a far better way than any like nice picture on land could ever show you. You said about students. So you are teaching... Yes. What are you teaching? Very lucky to I have a third year unit that we teach on historical and maritime archaeology. And so the whole idea of it is that kind of the modern world has been built over the last 500 or 1000 years when people have been traveling all over the world uh-huh. building these big systems. Uh-huh. Global capitalism, corporations, like all of this. But the beginnings of big systems like that can be seen in like the Fremantle Shipwrecks Museum has Batavia and that's one of the early wrecks from like when global capitalism was becoming a thing with uh-huh. the VOC and so we look at these bits of evidence from all over um, the country and look at these go okay well what can we understand about the world we live in today just by looking at these little bits because um, people go oh yeah you know these systems have always been around people have always had these corporations and shareholders or whatever but no they're quite young inventions mm-hmm. and we can look at the beginnings of them and try to figure out how they came to be. And um, shipwrecks are obviously a huge part of that, so we teach it side by side. We show them how to work underwater and then we show them kind of how to look at land sites all around. And I, I do my nerd stuff and teach them how to do mapping on computers and drones and all of that. Um, uh-huh. But the essence of the unit is, yeah, how do you think about the modern world? Um, and I would argue a really efficient and good way to do that is by using these new technologies and drones and computer mapping and everything. It must be uh, so fascinating for you because it, the technology is changing so much and so quick. But in the future, what do you think is going to happen? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I think the big thing that will define the next decade or two in archaeology for me, I hope, is looking underwater. And so it's always been this thing. People have looked for shipwrecks for a long time. Um, people have known about submerged forests for hundreds of years. But when people think about we know there's all of this stuff on the shelf right and we know people live there and that we can investigate it but it's always been hard because we haven't been able to collect the data and we don't know what the seafloor looks like and we don't have the ability to go and record these big sites and now we suddenly do and that's coincided with one us finding the artifacts on the seafloor so everyone goes okay actually we can look for these places it's not theoretical and it also coincides with a lot of offshore development um so a lot of wind farms and even just ports and harbors and everything are being built on these submerged landscapes. And so they need to take the fact that they have cultural considerations and they are cultural landscapes, they belong to Aboriginal people into consideration. Uh All of a sudden they're doing this. And I think a lot of that has become possible very much because we have this data and we have this ability to map these places that you can't see in any other way. Uh And when you get there, we have the ability to record them in 3d detail and really understand them. Um, and we get a much bigger picture of those big landscapes instead of just going, it's really hard. 
that being said, it's really hard. Um, but I think as it keeps getting easier, um, we'll find more things and that will make it more exciting. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, it gets better. And so that's what we try to teach the students because things have changed so fast. And I have a great example, which is we do this mapping of how shorelines change. And last year, we got them to go and draw like to do it on pen and paper first and to look at old pictures and old maps and kind of draw the old landforms and everything and then try to figure out how it's changed. And then the next week we went, okay, then we'll do the same thing on a computer. So it's going to be a bit harder. You're going to have to learn how to use this new software and learn the computer, but uh -huh. whatever. It was really hard on pen and paper. It was easier for people to learn the software and do the whole exercise because the computer just made it so much easier. Exactly. And so the insights people got into that just by using a very basic level of technology that's been around for 20, 30 years was enormous. I think every time people just get a little bit more proficient at looking at on scales that you are not normally used to looking, people are just going to get better and it's just going to get faster. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm a big optimist in that regard. And I think like these, um, your students, they prefer definitely use more technology than... Yeah, I think so. I think for some people, because it's an arts degree, so I have a science background, and it's an art. So I think some people come in and they don't haven't used computers really for their uh -huh. degree. I mean, they're writing in Word and they're doing that sort of stuff, but it is in some people's first introduction to some of these kind of more computery techy stuff. Uh -huh. um, and so definitely in the first instance, people look a bit. There's there's an essence of panic. There's a, really? <laughs> people go, oh my god, this is a lot. Are we really going to be able to learn this? And you go, it's okay. We'll 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 take you through it and we'll work it. And you have a good teacher. You'll be fine. Yeah, you have a good teacher. <laughs> you have the best. Um, and people do. They pick it up. And I think I don't want to speak on behalf of my lovely students, but I think they do enjoy it by the end. <laughs> <laughs> they can certainly complete the exercises, so that's a win. Talking about it with you, it looks like you have a really busy um, life and PhD, being a teacher, dive. What do you do on your spare time? Do you have spare time? <laughs> well, I spend a lot of my spare time in the ocean diving. I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I've been trying to because everyone warned me when going into a PhD that it was a bit, can be a bit of a nightmare. I think some people have really, really bad experiences with PhDs because it can be so busy. Uh -huh. and, so, um, and so I've tried to, like before work, I'm trying to go and swim and do a little bit of exercise with my mates or we've recently taken up surfing. They're all now much better than me, but I'm doing my best. Uh -huh. um, snorkeling, that sort of thing. So I try to before work and show up to a day of work after already having done like an hour of kind of active fun stuff. Um, I'm very bad at piano and I play a bit of that. Um, That's Very, incredible. very bad. <laughs> and yeah, those little things are enough to keep me going. But uh -huh. to be honest, I love the research that I get to do. Um, I'm, I'm going away in two weeks on a holiday for a month, which will be lovely to Europe. Oh, that's amazing. Um, but I'm I'm seeing rock art. <laughs> I'm seeing archaeology. Oh, I, really? I saw on someone's Instagram the other day that they dived uh, one of the cities in Italy that just ended up underwater oh, somehow. Amazing. And I went, oh, I'm going to do that as well. So I'm now looking at my holiday and it's like oh, museums, rock art, diving underwater city. Amazing. That must be amazing. <laughs> so I love what I do. And uh, what do you do to manage your time? Do you have like a schedule? You have an agenda? Mm -hmm. I live by my calendar. If something's not on my calendar, I, I'm not there. I forget. Um, so everything, as soon as I go, I'll do that, go straight to the calendar, and I live by that. Um, even I try, I'm not very good at it, but when I want to do some writing, um, mm -hmm. which is I've collected all my data for my PhD, so the next year is going to be a battle between me, time management, and Microsoft Word. Um, and so I'm just trying to block in like three hours of writing in the uh -huh. morning, nothing else. And then once I've done that, it, it feels pretty productive. And then I've got my meetings and everything. Uh -huh. But 
I live by my calendar. There's no other things. <laughs> if I need to do something, it's in my calendar. Cool. Um, you might don't believe me, but I, <laughs> I read a little bit of your first paper. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thinking about your um, schedule, everything, how long it took for you to create like the first paper to write everything? Because I saw that so many sources and there is a person that helped you as well and how that works. Yeah, it's okay. so I kind of started that a few months into my PhD, which was uh -huh. now a year and a half ago. Um, or almost two years ago now. Um, so it's taken that time to really get my feet and to write that. I wasn't only writing that paper in that time. There was a lot of like, I was in the field collecting data for my next two papers. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, in essence, that paper represents for me, me getting my head around all of the relevant archaeology that I needed, you need to understand for the next year um, uh -huh. or a couple of years and trying to put my work into a framework. So I'm hoping, don't want to say this now, um, but I'm hoping that represents kind of the hardest paper to write. And it was my first one as well, like baby scientist. I'm trying to work out how yeah. to... I, I, try, I try to remember the name, but um, I have to read. The Evolution of Australian Island Geographics and the Emergence of and Persistence of Indigenous Maritime Cultures. Mm. It's a bit of a mouthful, but yeah. this is this is probably going to be my kind of most theoretical paper. So basically what I'm trying to do here is look at the sea level change in all of the islands in Australia. And so to, to quickly fast forward, to come, I'll come back to this, but like the my next few papers are going to be looking at the islands of Marujuka and how they formed. Gotcha. And so I've been taking cores through beaches to try to work out how old all the dunes are. Mm -hmm. And we don't, no spoilers, but they're all about four or five thousand years old and they are built after the sea level high stand we think um and so the environment that we see today has developed over a few thousand years and all of the shellfish and turtles and everything that people are eating come about only in that last few thousand years and uh -huh. i'm trying to understand that story but the way i wanted to contextualize this was really broadly and like how does this fit into all islands in australia overall of time and so i went down a rabbit hole of reading that literature because people uh -huh. have been thinking about this question for a very long time like since australian archaeology started and over the last 50 years there's been some excellent work in looking in particular about how sea level has changed and how people use these sites that are now on the coast but not that long ago were hundreds of kilometers inland mm -hmm. and so what i found in this paper is that every island that we've investigated in the last well since archaeology began on this continent was not an island during the last ice age. Mm -hmm. It was either part of the it was part of the mainland, um, and so every island that has formed since then as an island is new. Um, and so we have to read the archaeology of those places as like, well, the sea level came up and people were living in the mainland, and now it's an island. And what that led us to the question of like, well, where are these islands uh -huh. like, during the ice age or when people first got here? Were there islands off Perth? And surprisingly, the answer is no. So off Perth, we have Rottnest Island, 20Ks off the coast. Um, beautiful, it's where the crocus are, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but as sea level goes back, um, Rottnest was like a hill halfway out. Exactly, to you could the walk shop. there, yeah. Yeah, you could walk there. And it was like, not, it was just a hill. But there was no older Rottnest out on that shelf. It was just a steep and simple coastline. And so when people were, when the sea level rose and they were walking off this coastline being pushed by the sea... Uh -huh. And Rottnest became an island. This is the first island people have seen probably in memory. It's not... And so in Murujuga, it's quite the same. Is that uh, on the Pilbara coast, there's heaps of beautiful islands. Barrow Island, Murujuga, the Dampier, mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. These um, sand islands to the south of Barrow, the Montebellos. But 
as you go to the Ice Age, there's no islands. It's, again, steep and simple coastlines. Um, and so what we see there and what I'm toying with this idea of is, like, well, how do you respond when you're a coastal people, you live on a beach, and then suddenly there's all of these new beautiful ecosystems to go out to that are clearly... I mean, I love going out to islands. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and we, people do go out to these islands. What draws you out to those places? And is that different if you are actually very island adapted? And so the contrast that I point to is the Kimberley and the Torres Strait, uh-huh. which um, Aboriginal people there are very maritime. They consider themselves saltwater people um, and they are used to voyaging between these islands. It's not a problem. Really? Um, yeah, and so they have the wonderful maritime technologies to do that. And w- the thing that stands out to me is that the Kimberley has always had islands. In fact, there's less islands in the Kimberley now than there were at the Ice Age. Um, and so if you think about the Kimberley, first of all, islands, right? Heaps. Me? But in terms of, like, when people showed up here 60,000, 70,000 years ago, there was more islands. They jumped from the islands of Indonesia into this beautiful island landscape. And then these islands changed and different islands formed and came away as sea level changed. Uh But they've always lived. They've always probably been an island people. So the boats that they came here in Uh 50,000 years ago could well be continuously connected, like as part of the same culture to the boats now. Um, And that's not something you can say, I think, of places like even down here um, where they're just there's no islands to voyage out to and so that remains to be seen that's a broad cultural generalization that we know never ends up being true Uh but i think it's it's for me it's an important hypothesis to go okay well what are we looking at um sydney the great barrier reef is the same the great barrier reef lots of islands there now not a lot of islands there at the ice age um man that's it's so hard to believe and imagine that it's amazing isn't it and then in all those experience all these places that you've been in working what was your memorable moment um so definitely when i was first started working in murajuga i'm looking at the rock art there's a few things that we think are extinct animals so um the tasmanian tiger is a really good example that like went extinct in tasmania less than 100 years ago right Uh we have photographs of it but on the main it used to live on the mainland and we have evident like fossils of that. Um, but in Murajuga, there's these drawings where it's like kind of a dog-shaped thing, stripe, 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 all the way along. And these are very no old. Way. There's no young versions of it. It's always a very old-looking drawing. A few things like that. But I remember seeing that thing and someone going, that is probably a Tasmanian tiger, a species that probably hasn't been on the mainland in thousands of years. I went, oh, my God, someone sat there, again, with the same brain as us, and drew this thing that I can look... It's just lines on a rock, right? It doesn't objectively mean anything. Uh-huh, and yet, uh-huh. because our brains are the same, I can look at it and go, oh, I, I think I know what that is. And that, to me, was amazing. You feel this actual one-on-one connection with someone thousands of years ago depicting something that you could never possibly have seen. Again, apart from this scientific fossil record, um, which is really <laughs> <laughs> amazing to think about. And I also had this amazing experience really recently. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'd just come back off uh, some of my PhD work where so we're drilling into these beaches and I'm finding artifacts h- hundreds of metres inland on ancient beach surfaces that people once made. So I've been thinking a lot about how these climates change and everything. And we were working on this film, um, Mamung, which is the story of the whale, uh-huh. with Lillian Robb and maybe a Griffiths who are like making this documentary about how climate change, how Aboriginal people climate change in particular how the Wujak Noongar who are the traditional owners here see the story of sea level rise and so Noel Nanup who's one of the elders here told these amazing stories we went out on a boat to Rotnest and he was telling the stories of the old song lines and they're not for me to share it's one for you know 
people can check out the film when it's out. But like, they. What's the name of the film again? Mamang. When when is it going to be released? Um, I'm not sure. They're still working on it, and they're looking, I think, for some funding. So if people Google that, okay. that's a good one to see. And that they've done some preview screenings, and I've seen some of it, and it's it's amazing because it tells this story of, as I was saying before, the songlines continue out to sea. And it was amazing going out there, and I can see things scientifically, and uh-huh. Mick, we can see these ancient dunes and these caves and these places that people would have once lived on. And yet, Noel was telling almost the same story, just obviously in a very different way. Uh-huh. And for me, it was like, oh, oh my God, these are... <laughs> how How is this possible? Like, And I'm used to growing up in... Like, our oral culture, like, in English, it's not very old. Like, you can't really... If you hear a story from a hundred years ago, orally told, you're not going to believe it. It's probably changed quite substantially. And yet these are very different. And there's really good record, like evidence that these are, you can believe the stories that go back that far. Um, and for me, you hear that and you understand it and you you have a level of respect. But then to just see it play out and to have someone like look you in the eye and tell uh-huh. you something uh-huh. that you, a piece of information you fought really hard for and you tried to figure out, you thought you were very clever for figuring out. And then someone <laughs> goes, we've always known that. And you go, wow, I have a lot to learn and a lot to listen to. That's a very humbling experience. So. And I'm, I imagine your mind must be like every day you wake up and oh man, I have to learn more things and I'm going to do this. I feel very it's, stupid every day. It's wonderful. It's fascinating. <laughs> hey, um, um, it blew my mind. And Let's say that I'm um, like after this, I'm really enthusiastic now, and um, I want to be an archaeologist first. Try to follow your your steps. What would be your tip? What what I need to do to be an archaeologist, for example? Yeah, great question. Because um, I would never have considered it when I was coming out of my ancient history teacher in high school was like. You, you like ancient history. I was doing that subject for fun. It was like by far my worst subject. Terrible idea. I never no. even thought you <laughs> loved the class. I was just, I didn't have the mind for it or something. And it it was never like a key priority, right? I always thought this is an interesting hobby to have, but it's not a job. Uh-huh. I was completely wrong <laughs> in that respect. There's a lot of jobs for archaeologists. And so to be honest, the way to become an archaeologist, you go to uni for three years and uh-huh. you do an undergrad in archaeology. Um, and then, or if you have another degree, you can go and do a a grad dip or that sort of thing. And then you do one year, which is your honors year, where you do a bit of a research project. Uh And that's where I started working in Morajuga. And once you have that honors degree, there are a lot of people who need archaeologists. Really? Um, And so everyone I went through honors with was employed straight away. (laughs) There's a lot of jobs in archaeology. So yeah, it's quite a boring answer. Just go study it and then you can work. Good money. Are you kidding me? Amazing one, yeah. Right, so. Let's change the... <laughs> let's be archaeologist. <laughs> what am I doing here? That's true. The money is there. Rock, do you have any questions for our friend Patrick? I think we covered pretty much everything. It's so amazing. <laughs> so many stuff. To... Man, seriously, it blew yeah. our mind. And, uh... Maybe because I am... I was looking the last few months a little bit of mapping and everything. Uh, I know that you use many software to do maybe certain for some software are better to do 3d mapping other ones are better to do measurements other ones are better for elevations uh, i don't know if you if you use like a specific software to do 3d mapping just kind of drone deploy pix 4d if you can talk a little bit more specific about the tools that you normally use to do mapping yeah that's a good question um a lot of my colleagues use things like drone deploy and pix 4d because they're so 
if you're if you're working and you need a map, you can send it away and it does yeah. it all for you. And that's really, really useful. And the quality that it gets out will be, if you do it right and you're careful about your control points, better than anything you could get any other way. You don't need to play around and get into the nitty gritty. That's really, really useful. Another question is because we are involving more DJI stuff, right? Is any other drone that has maybe the same capabilities to do these kind of jobs? Um, for, to be honest, me, people seem to use mostly DJI. And the thing right. you've got to um, really be particular about is you want one with a global shutter. So you want yeah. one with a, like a, a, not an electronic shutter like <laughs> the Mavics. Um, oh, I think one of the new Mavics does have a mechanical shutter now. The, but... the Enterprise. Okay, yeah. And yeah. so that's the one you want to use. If you have an RTK and you have that shutter, then that will get you the images that you want. And that seems to be the standard. Um, exactly. I People do seem to use other ones, but... Why the mechanic shutter? Um, because when you have the electronic shutter, when it's moving um, and you want to be flying, taking heaps of pictures, so unless you stop the drone, you get this like jello effect that you sometimes uh -huh. see in video cameras. Um, and that's bad because you'd need just a clean, crisp image to get the perfect measurements. And uh -huh. as soon as you have a bit of that rolling shutter, that jello effect, it introduces errors. So all of the main software, so the main software I use is AGSoft Metashape. Um, that works best underwater and just okay. like nothing else seems to work that well. Um, And so I use that for... I'm learning too much today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'd recommend giving that a go. Um, that's really a great professional piece of software to do everything. Um, but And they like can correct for it, I think. So can Pix4D and Drone Deploy, yeah. but it's always better to get a better and, level of data. And for normal people that maybe want to start doing this, maybe with a GoPro or a little camera, uh, is any software like... Because I know that not just the drone and, and the bigger cameras are really expensive. Also those software that we were talking about They are really expensive, like, I don't know, thousands of dollars per year, just a, a simple membership or subscription. Is there any kind of free open software that maybe you recommend to start with for the people that, you know, that yeah. want to start with this? In terms of mapping, there's Open Drone Map, which is an open source one that's been yeah. getting a lot better um, very quickly. For the work that I do, it's just, it still isn't quite as good as some of those proprietary offerings, yeah. but it's really good if you want to get started. The other thing is there's some like online ones, I can't remember, like Polycam or some of the phone apps yeah. that just, they, they do the same thing and they work really, really well. Um, so if people want to play around with it, go on the app store and just search photogrammetry. I think Polycam yeah. is the one that I have shown my students. And you can straight away just start taking pictures and you get 3D models. Wow. Um, but then I think the reason they're so expensive is they can get away with it. People who are providing this level of service, yeah. it's just like yeah. people are kind of willing to pay. They're used to paying a huge amount to get the same level of detail manually. Yeah. So it's just people go, ah, it's a few thousand dollars, <laughs> whatever. This is a really nice question because I was thinking, how do people, the, 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 maybe the... Um, The people which is involved in mapping, how much is around the hour for, for these kind of jobs? Um, Because I can see that everything is expensive, right? The enterprise drones, the, the license to get the software, but how much they are charging for that? I don't around? know. I, I, want, I do want to know that as well. Um, I, unfortunately... <laughs> crazy. My business sense is terrible. Um, and I do, a lot, I do all my stuff for academia and for government. And so I'm just working i don't get paid extra for it yeah, yeah, yeah. and i know people are charging a lot um i don't know so if anyone oh, well, knows please good. let me know how much money i could be earning if i wasn't <laughs> doing a phd <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's thank you okay so we can't we can't be archaeologists yeah <laughs> we can be doing mapping and her like patrick because he's gonna be doing yeah. <laughs> 
Patrick, thank you so much. Man, seriously, I have so many other questions, but I, I think it would be like we need to have like a two or three days to talk yeah. and talk. Maybe we can come here another day and we can Love discuss to. other things. We have another two papers that we can talk. That's it. And... When the next one's out, I'll be ready to plug it. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming in. And I really appreciate your time. All the things that you guys learned. I'm so happy. And thank you so much for coming here. Thank you very much. Patrick, thank you so much. I, I really, it blew my mind. I was not expecting that. It basically was like a kind of lesson or time, a lecture. And I felt like a student again. You know? <laughs> That's good. Hopefully in a good way. No, that, that, that was good. But thinking about that, tell me about how you lost your drone. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it's so embarrassing. I, I guess... I'm I'm glad the last one definitely my fault. So that's you know I I think because I had had it for a while, uh -huh. um, I was just kind of like, look, I paid five hundred dollars for it two years ago. I've got a lot of pictures, so I was leaning more onto like, as long as it's not dangerous, it I'm gonna itself, get the, right? it's pay itself. I'm happy with it. I want to get the shot more than I care about the life of the drone now. <laughs> Obviously, after it crashed into a field, <laughs> it literally just blew away and burnt crash. Um, but you get it back or yeah. <laughs> it's gone really? it's gone and the same for the next one so I was really glad I was flying over the Swan River because uh -huh. it just went into the obviously it sucks that it's in the river yeah. I would like to get I'm hoping to get it back um, but I'm just glad it didn't fall on anything or everything. and that's why I'd like to fly it away over water because yeah. like the worst thing that happens is you lose your drone and, um, and, and that's a good point I think um, people don't realize that we fly machines mm. and they fail Yeah, and um, you, you said that you um, watched the podcast with Josh, and I explained that we were flying one of the little ones, the the black ones, and one of the engine failed, and it fall pretty much like in Scarborough, and in for two or three months in my mind, I was always thinking it could be falling. Like, can you imagine like a mom with a yeah. I, I, that, that that scares me so much. Especially if there's strong wind and it's 120 meters up, you might not be directly over someone, but that yeah. can go. So yeah, just keeping that. And that was, I knew this theoretically, <laughs> but seeing it happen, because like, oh, they don't fail anymore. Like I know, was that the, the 3DR or something? 3DR Solar, yeah. yeah. It's it a while ago now. So I was like, oh, no, the yeah. DJI ones are better there. Were. But yeah, as you said, they're machines. And sometimes they're machines. Just, <laughs> it was so, I was, I was, so I was flying it flying with a, a mate so we were he was somewhere off flying his like ancient mavic one or whatever uh -huh. <laughs> and i was flying my brand new drone and it just went oh controller disconnected adjust antenna and i went huh weird and then i looked up at the drone and i just saw it falling falling uh -huh. falling and then i just saw a little splash <laughs> and no. went oh <laughs> no um i kind of knew i'd heard that people like they're pretty good with the warranty and if it's that you can just send off the data and they go, okay, that wasn't your fault. It's all good. Uh -huh. We'll send you another one. Did you? Um, and yeah, they're, they're all, they're happy to send another one and <laughs> sort that out. Thank you, DJ. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was a real humbling experience to go, oh yeah, they can just fall out of the sky. 
Cool. Uh, there's one question that I forgot to ask for you. What's the future? What are you thinking to do? What's the next mm. steps for you now? Um, so yeah, the next year, I'm going to be working on my PhD and trying to get that finished. Uh -huh. I want to get it. So the minimum you can do in three years, and I'm, I shouldn't say this while we're recording, but I want to finish it in three years. I will get it done. Uh, <laughs> why is that? Because generally people don't finish um, it. Yeah, it's hard to finish such a big project in that time. Um, uh -huh. And so normally just delays come about and it extends to three and a half or four years is very common. Uh -huh. um, and I'm like, okay, I, I know that's probably going to happen and it will get delayed because this, you know, you can't plan for everything, but I'm gunning to get it finished. Uh -huh. And then I don't know, I'd like to be in academia. I love, I love the mix of research and lecturing and trying to find new things out. Um, that being said, a lot of my super, like my supervisors have been in industry. They do a lot of consulting and we're fortunate in our industry that consulting is very research heavy uh -huh. and so you can go into consulting and industry and do some work for quite some time and then come back into academia and people kind of acknowledge that the work that you've done there is just as important as work that's been done mm -hmm. in academia and so i don't kind of mind where i end up as long as i'm doing interesting research in these beautiful places uh -huh. good for me but are you still thinking that you're going to stay here in perth or are you um, I'd like to, this is part of why I'm going on a little holiday to try to get a sense. I've never been to Europe before. Mm. And so I'd like to go around and look and I, I've done my undergrad and my honors, my PhD here in Perth. Mm. So it's all very, very particular way of looking yeah. at the world and thinking about yeah. things. And I'd like to broaden that quite substantially. Yes. Um, so I'd like to go work somewhere else for sure. Um, the thing that keeps stopping me from going, oh yeah, I'll absolutely leave, um, is that big things are happening now with submerged landscape stuff in Western Australia uh -huh. and it really is feeling like a right place, right time sort of thing. Fantastic. So ideally I think I'd like to go away and learn some skills elsewhere and bring them back um, but there's a good chance there'll just be something so exciting here <laughs> that I go, uh, I'll go on a holiday, you know. <laughs> oh, that's a, I did, that, didn't know about that. <laughs> cool. Patrick, thank, thank you, you so much. much. <laughs> really appreciate See it. Thank you so much, man.